Okay, so this week is Parshas Noach. And I always get the sense that there's so much to talk about over here because the personalities and the storylines that we read about in our Parsha are really one and done. Yeah, we meet Noah, of course, in the last week's Parsha. And we meet Abraham at the end of this week's Parsha. But for the most part, the entire Parsha is a self-contained story with self-contained individuals, the protagonists and the antagonists, of course, of our Parsha in the flood story, and then later on at the end of the Parsha in the Tower of Babel story, in the dispersal story. It's almost self-contained, and there's really a lot of liberty, I feel like, every year, a lot of poetic license to say interesting and creative ideas on this Parsha. And here's what I want to share with you in this week's edition, in this year's edition, in the sixth cycle of the Parsha Podcast edition for Parsha's Noach's edition of the Parsha Podcast. I want to talk about what happened after the flood. Of course, there's the run to the flood. There's the building of the ark. And then they spend basically a year in the ark. And then the waters subside. And Noah sends out the raven and then the dove multiple times. And then things have quieted. The waters have lowered themselves. It's dry again. And we read in chapter 8, verse 15, God said to Noah, it's time to leave. Say, Manat Teva, go out of the Teva, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives, your daughters-in-law with, with you, and also the animals. All the animals and all the creepy crawlers, all of them should be taken out of the ark. So the first interesting thing here is that we know at this juncture, the waters are not present. The waters have subsided. Yet God instructs Noah to leave. Even though there's no more water, he was instructed to leave. And then in verse 17, there's an interesting word usage in the verse. It says, say, take him out of the ark. So Rashi tells us something really fascinating. Rashi says that God said to Noah, Tell the animals to leave. And if they don't want to leave, if they want to stay in the ark, you should force them out. So to me, this was a very interesting Rashi. Because if you think of the conditions in the ark, it was very cramped. It was very claustrophobic. So many animals, so much noise. Can you imagine the noise? Can you imagine the stench of what it was like? to be cooped up for a whole year, no one's showered, everyone is in very tight, constrained location. There's squalor. It's a miserable experience. We're told the humans and also the animals were not allowed to procreate. This seems like an awful place to spend the year. This is not exactly a luxury cruise. Yet, the verse implies and Rashi spells out, Yet the animals wanted to remain in the ark. And Noah had to force them out. And God had to tell even the humans, leave, don't stay there. You have to leave. Now, the question is, I think, obvious. Why was there a need to force everyone out of the ark? You would imagine that they were counting down the moments and the hours and the seconds until when they could be liberated from the miserable experience that was spending a year with all the world's animals in a very small boat, relatively. Why would there be a need to force them out, both humans and the animals? So I saw the Maharal, he addresses this question. 
And he says that, yes, the animals in the ark, they suffered, but they also had something positive about the experience. Namely, they did not need to go and forage for their own food. They didn't need to go seek food. Noah and the rest of his family, they were responsible for making sure that everyone was well fed. In fact, the Mitzvah tells a story that the lion was fed late one day and he attacked Noah. Noah was dripping in blood. The animals just sat down, did nothing, and were fed by Noah, were fed by the humans. And therefore, there was something very appealing, even though it was a miserable experience in general, but there was something positive for the animals, namely that they did not need to rely on themselves to go seek food. It was delivered to them room service by Noah and his kin. And the morale adds that uh, Rashi tells us about the dove. The dove is such a special animal. It's like the animal that symbolizes the Jewish people. And when the dove took the olive branch, so Rashi tells us that the dove was saying, I'd rather have bitter food and be fed by God than have sweet, delectable, sumptuous food fed to me by Noah. So the dove is a special animal. The dove wants to be fed by God. But all the other animals, says the morale, all the other animals, they wanted to have Noah feed them. And that's why they wanted to remain in the ark. And therefore, the might tells Noah, sorry, you leave, family leaves, and make sure everyone else leaves as well, all the animals. And if they don't want to leave, force them out. They can no longer remain in the ark. I want to suggest maybe another answer to answer this question. Why was there a need to compel everyone to leave? You would imagine that they would be itching to leave on their own. Maybe we can suggest the following. When you're in a situation that you have become accustomed to, you are used to your experience, your situation, your environment. People get comfortable in their situation and there's familiarity and there's safety and there's protection in the ark. And no matter how bad it is, people have a tendency to get comfortable with the status quo and they don't want to leave it. The status quo no matter how cramped it is, no matter how unpleasant it is, no matter how miserable it is, based on objective standards. Nevertheless, it has a feeling of comfort. It's almost like a cocoon that makes you not want to leave. And when you have to leave from this cocoon, even though it's subjectively miserable, but you have to go to the big bad world and you have to go to the unfamiliar places, it's hard. And therefore, God says to Noah, leave. You've been here for a year and it's miserable, but it's possible that you guys want to stay there a little bit. You've grown acculturated to your circumstances. Leave. And the animals as well. They got used to it. It's miserable, but this is home now. And to leave home, to leave the safety and the comfort of the status quo is very difficult, no matter how bad the status quo actually is. You're in the ark. You must leave. Your destiny, the place where you 
will flourish, the place where you will spread your wings, is outside. You must abandon your comfort and you must leave the status quo. In the ark, you're not going to flourish. You have to leave. You have to pull the trigger. You have to do it. You have to jump into the abyss, into the unknown, into the dangerous world out there. That's where you must be. And if you don't want to leave, boom, I'm kicking you out. You have to leave. Amazing insight here. If you remember, a couple of months ago, we talked about the Exodus. Of course, we're closer to this year's version of the Exodus in a couple of months than this past year's version of the Exodus when we read the book of Exodus. But if you remember, during the Exodus story, Rashi tells us something so perplexing, so disturbing, it really, it really sticks in your brain. Rashi says that there were four out of five people, 80% of the Jews, who did not want to leave Egypt. Even though in Egypt, they were enslaved, they were tormented, they were oppressed, they were marginalized. Nevertheless, they wanted to stay. To leave with Moshe, notwithstanding all the miracles, to leave with Moshe and to go to the unknown, that was a terrifying notion for 80% of the Jewish people. And they wanted to stay. And even though the situation was miserable, familiar misery is more comfortable, is more safe than the promise that is unknown, even if that unknown is laden with opportunities. And therefore, 80% of the Jews were told, featured in Rashi, based upon the comment in the Midrash, 80% of the Jewish people died during the plague of darkness. 80% of the Jews preferred to remain in Egypt, to remain enslaved, to remain a permanent underclass of Egyptian society. That was preferable than to leave with Moshe. It's just a stunning insight into, into human character and human psychology. Our current situation, what we're used to, what we're accustomed to, where we feel secure, it could be awful and miserable by any objective standards. It could be enslavement. It could be in this awful arc. So much noise and such an awful smell and such a terrible experience and such a cap, such a limitation on human potential. But nevertheless, the familiar misery that has something very irresistibly appealing because the unknown is frightening. And only 20% of the Jewish people, only 20% were strong enough, were brave enough, had the courage and the fortitude and maybe even the faith to say, I'm in, I'm pulling the trigger, I'm leaving, I'm going out. And by the way, what happened after they left? So at the very beginning of Parshas Bashalach, it says that the Almighty set the Jewish people on a very long and circuitous route. And the reason why is because he was worried what's going to be if they see conflict, if they go in a very straight, direct route, they'll be more inclined to turn around and go back to Egypt after the Exodus. It's an amazing insight. The 20% of the people who did leave, not the 80% who died in Egypt, the 20% of the people who did leave, 
that constitutes the Jewish people now at the Exodus. And even with them, there is a threat or there's a concern, a legitimate concern that they will want to turn around and go back, quote unquote, home to the misery, to the enslavement, to the oppression, to the permanent underclass of Egypt, and they might have made a long circuitous route to make that less feasible and desirable. Amazing insight here. That even someone who is brave, who does leave the cocoon, who does leave the ark, who does leave Egypt, they're not secure. And they are very likely, when they see a bump in the road, when they see a little obstacle, when they face some resistance as they are bound to do, they're very likely to seek the return to safety, to assumed safety and comfort of the previous status quo. And they might have to manipulate the events to ensure that they're locked in, they can't go back. There's no returning. There's no way to undo it. You are stuck. You must Leave the doors of the ark are sealed shut. You can't get back in. There are two things that our sages tell us are as difficult as splitting the sea. And they are, we're told, getting married and making money, making a livelihood, doing business. And of course, the commentaries offer a variety of reasons as to why these two things specifically are as difficult as splitting the sea. One of the suggestions commonly offered to explain this is that the Jewish people splitting the sea, they were surrounded. They were encircled by their enemies. And Nachshon, of course, the head of the tribe of Judah, jumped in, Aaron's brother-in-law. And with the Egyptians bearing down upon us, he had no choice. He went in and the waters came all the way to his nostrils until they finally split. In these areas, you have to jump in. You have to cross the Rubicon. You have to go in. You want to get married? There's someone that you like. There's someone whose values are your values. You share your values. You're attracted to them. They're a good person. They come from a good family. All the boxes that you need are checked. What are you waiting for? You have to jump in. You have to propose. Don't sit around and wait. We have, again, a tendency to stay where we are, to stay in the ark, to stay in Egypt, to stay on dry land. And in order for this to happen, you have to take the plunge. You have to do it. If you want to make money, you want to do big business, you're going to have to make this kind of choice. There is a certain comfort of being guaranteed a salary. Every two weeks, you get the direct deposit in your account. And you know that you're not maximizing all your talents. You know that the Almighty created you to do bigger and better things. But you know what? There's comfort. There's comfort in the ark. Ark could be miserable. You hate your boss. You hate your colleagues. You hate your coworkers. Now, of course, I'm just exaggerating this point. We love all, everyone. <laughs> we love everyone. But the concept, you're not maximizing the tools, the abilities that they might gave you. You feel like you're underemployed. To change your situation, you're going to have to pull the trigger. You're going to have to do the very uncomfortable, painful, terrifying thing of leaving the ark, of putting in your two-week notice and pursuing your dream. You have to make the choice to leave 
the ark. And I think it's a nice framework over here. The Almighty tells Noah, I'm going to help you. Leave! The Almighty didn't wait for them to leave on their own. The Almighty recognizes that this is a challenge. Humans, again, we have a tendency to grow accustomed to our situation. No matter how bad it is, it's still home. It's still comfortable. It's still where I feel secure. Says the Almighty, leave. You must leave. Oh, and the animals, they also have to leave. And if they don't want to leave, boot them out. Kick them out. Force them out. Make the animals leave. They don't want to. They must be forced. And I was thinking that this idea really appears all over the Torah. Every single one of the heroes of the Torah is forced out of their comfort zone and is propelled by the Almighty to a circumstance that they themselves, these people themselves, would not have chosen. But that is how the Almighty creates a situation, a circumstance, positions these people to accomplish great things. You know, Adam, of course, is booed from the garden. He's very distressed. He desperately seeks a portal to get back in. But God shoves him out. He has to leave the comfort of the garden. He has to get to work. Abraham, of course, beginning of these parashas, told, Lech lecha, leave, leave your comfort zone, leave your homeland, leave the house of your father. It's time for you to become great. The Almighty is constantly manipulating and forcing people out of their comfort zone into the opportunity zone. Jacob is sent fleeing. You can imagine that he was very distressed, had to leave his family, had to run away from Israel, land of Canaan, but ultimately he ends up with a whole tribe actually 12 tribes, and lots of wealth. Given the choice you'd imagine, Joseph would remain with his family, never be sold as a slave. But they might have had different plans for him. When it's all said and done, Joseph is viceroy of Egypt. Moshe is forced, of course, to flee Egypt and to go to the great unknown. There was this pattern again and again, and it's happening here. Immediately after the flood, the world has been cleansed, it's been removed of all the contaminants. And now the Almighty is saying, I want to position people to flourish. You're in the ark. You're comfortable in the ark. It's time to leave. Force them out if they don't want to go. It's time to go become great. And I'm thinking that if you look at the whole story after the exodus from the ark, the Almighty is setting up humanity for success. So we read, for example, that Noah builds an altar and offers sacrifices, and God smells the sacrifices, and God says to his heart, oh, I'm not going to curse humanity again. And they are going to have the six different seasons of seeds, of planting, of harvest, of cold, of heat, of summer and winter. This is verse 22 of chapter 8. And Rashi tells us there's going to be six seasons. I assume he wasn't referring to Houston, Texas. I was told when I got here, there's only two seasons in Houston, Texas. It's either summer or August, which is kind of inside joke here, but actually not today. Today, there's some gorgeous weather this week. But if you read this verse, it doesn't really seem to flow. So we have Noah bringing the sacrifice and God smelling the sacrifice and saying, okay, I'm committing to never do this again. And then the follow-up in verse 22 is when humanity is promised, 
you'll always have these six seasons, the, the planting season, the harvest season, the cold, the heat, the summer, the winter. Rashi explains that each one of them is two months. There's always going to be this, this cyclical seasonal cycle. Now, what the connection between the seasons being fixed and the flood or the lack of the flood, the promise to not have a flood, doesn't seem to immediately connect. If God would just say, hey, there's no more flood, that doesn't necessarily mandate that the seasons will follow a set schedule. You know, the flood seems to be in a very different dimension than that of the seasons. Now, there's a really interesting Sephorno that I saw here. The Sephorno says that the concept of seasonality did not exist before the flood. It was always springtime. And that's why, says the Sephorno, really interesting, that's why people lived so long. But the Almighty changed the rules of the world after the flood in this verse. And so long as this world exists in its current epoch, in its current iteration, we have these cycles of seasons. But when Messiah comes, says the Sepharno, the Almighty is going to restore the world to the way it was before the flood. We're going to have only one season. It's like San Diego. It's always beautiful. And that's why people will live really long in Messianic times. Really interesting Sepharno here. And this, by the way, is another answer to the question of how people in antiquity had such longevity living over 900 years, this is the answer that the seasons, the rules governing what kind of world we're living in were very different. And the Messianic times were told things will be restored. But again, we don't see what the continuation is. The first set of verses talk about the flood not happening again. And then we read, oh, by the way, we'll have seasonality. What's the continuation? So I want to suggest a theory. I don't want to speculate with you. Tell me if you agree. Does this make sense? Here's my suggestion. The Almighty, after Noah, leaves the ark. So he boots him out. He says, okay, leave the comfort zone. I'm going to force you out to make something of yourself, to give opportunity to flourish. And then Noah offers a sacrifice and God says, you know what? I'm committing myself to not bring the flood again. And then he says, I want to invest more in humanity. I want to give them all kinds of opportunities that they previously did not have. And if I told you, hey, it's always 72 degrees and sunny outside. It's beautiful all the time. You can go golfing every day of the year. You don't need to really have a very diverse wardrobe. You just wear polo shirts all day, every day. It's a great kind of life. But there's something that you lose when you don't have that up and down the ebbs and flows of the seasons. And that is you don't have that feeling of opportunity and renewal that comes with the changing of the seasons. You know, now it's it's fall time, it's autumn. And I remember growing up in the Northeast, all the leaves are changing colors and you have that crisp wind and it's, oh, pumpkin spice season. Oh, it's football season. And there's something really nostalgic and, and, and exciting about the new season that is emerging. And of course, we have like a Jewish version of this. Oh, it's Hanukkah time. We're going to light the menorah. Are you really ready for it? And you, you want to eat those latkes and the donuts? 
And then comes Pesach time and you're really excited for the first matzah crunch. You know, after seven days of eating it, maybe you can move on to bread and other things. But the beginning of it, it's always exciting. And then we have, of course, Rosh Hashanah Kippur, you're really ready for that. There is something that is transformational about the fact that we are given seasonality. We are given a cyclical, seasonal calendar cycle that that always gives us an opportunity for renewal, for freshness. I remember in yeshiva, so this year, of course, there's three semesters, the winter, the summer, and then Elul, right before Rosh Hashanah. And at the beginning of every semester, every zman as it's called, there's always excitement. It's a new start. It's a new opportunity. It's a new beginning. You know what? Maybe you had a rough semester last time, but so what? It's a new start. We get to start anew. It's fresh. Maybe you got a new Chavrusa. It's a new book of Talmud. And maybe things weren't that great last semester, but so what? You have an opportunity to start from scratch. I think the Almighty, after the flood, he's trying to help us. So he's nudging us out of our comfort zone into the opportunity zone. He's telling us that your current situation, where you're comfortable in, it might not be ideal. Try to push yourself maybe to be slightly uncomfortable, do a smidgen past what you can comfortably do, ease yourself into greatness. Then he gives us this cyclical, seasonal cycle. There's always new opportunity. Now we're starting a new cycle of the Parsha. We're reading the Parsha, and it's fresh, it's exciting. Maybe we dropped off a little bit last year, but so what? There's boundless opportunity. And the Almighty is going to set up the calendar that every two months you have a fresh start. Every two months... You can start with a clean slate and you have a brand new opportunity. You have boundless opportunities to always reinvent yourself. I'm thinking this year is a leap year in the Jewish calendar, which means we have a double Adar, an extra month. What a beautiful opportunity. We have a long winter. A long winter before we have Pesach. There's no disruptions. Of course, we have Hanukkah, Purim in the middle. But still, for the most part, it's a very long winter. And I always get the sense, whenever there's an extra month, you really have an opportunity to completely transform your spiritual self in one season, in one semester. In one winter, if you dedicate yourself, if you commit yourself to say, okay, I'm taking this opportunity, this new opportunity, it's a brand new season, it's a new semester in the yeshiva, We've done the holiday festival season, and now we're starting something new, a new opportunity. Before the flood, it was just, it was always the same. It was always the same, which is great, but you miss out on this new opportunity. And the mice says, I'm, a, I'm not going to have the flood. Why won't there be a flood? Because there's not going to be a reason for the flood. People won't fall in to a pattern that they can't get out of. They won't be in a quagmire that they cannot extricate themselves from. Why? Because I'm going to give them seasons. And every season marks a new opportunity, a new, fresh beginning. Okay, let's get this week's exquisite insight. It's still called an exquisite insight. I still think, actually, that this week's version of it can still legitimately be called exquisite. You tell me if you agree. Send me email at And let's go back to verse 20 of chapter 8. 
It's talking about the sacrifice that Noah brought after he emerged from the ark. He builds an altar and he brings from the kosher animals sacrifices. And then verse 21, God smells it. And God says to his heart, I will not curse the land again for man because the Yetzirah of man is evil from his youth. And therefore, I will not strike again all the living things as I did. So first of all, the Ramban here, he jumps on the verse saying that God spoke to his heart. Of course, God has no heart. That's a corporeal thing. This is another example of the verse anthropomorphizing God. So it's saying something and the way we process it is God spoke to his heart. So what does that mean? Says the Ramban. When it says that God spoke to his heart, it means that God made a decision that he did not reveal at the time of that decision. So there was no prophet at the time that God told this to. Only later on, when God commanded Moshe to write the whole Torah, only then was it revealed that the bringing of the sacrifices that Noah did after the exodus from the ark, only centuries after the event actually happened, only then was it revealed that this prompted God, so to speak, to not, or to commit himself to not ever strike all of humanity again. So first of all, I think there's an amazing, amazing insight. We'll call this exquisite insight number one. For hundreds of years, there was a decision, a divine decision that no one knew about, namely that the Almighty, thanks to Noah offering these sacrifices, the Almighty committed to never do another flood. Noah essentially saved all of humanity for all time because he brought these sacrifices. But this was something that God said to his heart, so to speak, i.e. no one knew about it for centuries. I think it's like an amazing idea that it's possible for someone to save the entire world and literally no one knows about it because we don't have a window into how the Almighty is doing all the calculations and how the Almighty is processing the behavior of humanity, Noah saved all future generations from undergoing a kind of apocalyptic event as he underwent, and no one had a clue to that. I think that's an amazing, exquisite insight. We'll call that exquisite point number one. But let's get to exquisite point number two. The Ramban continues in his explanation of this verse, and he says there's two reasons why the Almighty committed not to destroy the world. Number one, ba'avur ha'adam, because of man. Meaning, because Adam began a process of sinning, and that continued to every generation, therefore the later generations, they didn't invent sin, they perpetuated the sins of their forefathers, and therefore we we can't blame them as much as we could in the event that they themselves, they created or they innovated this sinful way. And therefore, because Noah and the subsequent generations, they didn't come up with the concept of sin, it was really started with Adam, that's why the Almighty commits to never do this again. Reason number one, blame Adam. Reason number two, the the evil inclination of the heart of man is evil from his youth. 
we have an inclination, an evil inclination. And that is trying to get us to sin. And that started off when we were babies. A child at birth, Rashi already brings us down. A child at birth is given Yetzirah. And this evil inclination, this Yetzirah, tries to get a person to sin. And therefore, how can you blame man for sinning? After all, God gave you this evil inclination. How can you be blamed? The Rechaim says that it's almost like a stadium ox. If you have an ox that was trained to fight in the stadium, it's trained to be destructive. How can mankind be blamed? We have a Yetzirah, and this Yetzirah trains us and raises us and rears us to become sinners. How can we be blamed? And therefore, the Messiah says, for these two reasons, because we did not innovate sin, and because we have Yetzirah from the very beginning of our life, the Yetzirah has a head start by 13 years over the Yetzirah Tov, therefore, humanity will not be destroyed again. Now, here's the question. The Ramban told us two reasons why the flood won't happen. Or he explains the verse, the verse of verse 22. There's two reasons why the flood won't happen again. Number one, because this is learned behavior from the times of Adam, preceding generations. Number two, because we have a Yetzara that compels us, that impels us to sin, and therefore, how can we be blamed? It's an obvious question. Both of those reasons, we're copying the behavior of our antecedents. Both of those reasons preceded the flood. If the Almighty commits himself to not do a flood, to not destroy all of humanity, because, well, this is just learned behavior from the times of Adam, and we have a Yetzirah, how can you blame us for the force that you implanted within us? Both of those reasons existed before the flood. Yet the flood happened nonetheless. So what is this rationale? God says, oh, now I'm not going to destroy the world again because of these reasons. Well, why did he destroy the world to begin with, i.e. with the flood, when those reasons existed prior to the flood? In the antediluvian stage. This is a very difficult question, but I think the answer is obvious. The reason why these arguments, these reasons, why they are valid now and they were not valid before the flood, well, that's because of the beginning of the verse, because of the sacrifice. God smelled the wafting aroma, so to speak, of the sacrifice, and therefore he invoked those reasons that preceded the flood. I think this is an amazing idea. Because Noah Because he offered the sacrifice, that invoked, that raised the reasons that were always there, but they were not raised, so to speak, before God, and it carried no weight. And there's precedence for this idea. If you go all the way back to chapter 2 of Genesis, it's talking about after creation, and it's saying how the trees and the grasses did not sprout. And Rashi asked the question, wait a minute, it does say that the trees and the grasses on day three when they were created, they were instructed, the earth was instructed that they should emerge, they should surface, they they should sprout, they should bloom. So why is it saying now that they didn't bloom? So Rashi tells us something very astonishing. They didn't bloom because it didn't rain. And it didn't rain because Adam 
was not created yet. And Adam was not created and he did not pray. And it's only when Adam prayed for rain did it start raining. And then all the trees and grasses that were instructed, so to speak, to surface, to bloom, to blossom, it's only then that they actually surfaced. An amazing idea here. The trees and the grasses were all like waiting in the tunnel to emerge. They had all the instructions, so to speak, to emerge, but absent prayer, they didn't. And we know that sacrifice and prayer are interchangeable principles philosophically. When you pray or you bring a sacrifice, you're invoking, you're actualizing, you're bringing out the potential that was always there, you're making that surface. The arguments of, oh, well, how could you blame us for our sins? We just, we just followed the ways of our antecedents since the times of Adam. How could you blame us? We have a Yetzirah. Those arguments were always present. But there was no prayer. There was no sacrifice before the flood. And therefore, those arguments were like the grasses. They were like the trees and the shrubs before the rain and before the prayer for rain. Everything is in place, but it wasn't activated. It wasn't actualized. It wasn't brought to the surface. There's an astonishing takeaway from this. What would have happened had someone prayed slash offered a sacrifice before the flood? Well, according to this, the flood would not have happened. Because via prayer, via offering a sacrifice, had Noah brought a sacrifice before the flood, then God would have said, oh, he would have smelled, so to speak, the aroma of the sacrifice. And we'd have said, how could I destroy the world? They're just copying the ways of their forebearers since the times of Adam. And the answer they have within them has been trying to get them to sin since they were babies. How could I blame them? The same arguments that ultimately ensured that a second flood will not happen could have prevented the first flood from happening. If only it was actually invoked. If only it was elevated. If only it was surfaced. It was there. Everything was there. The arguments were all there, ready in place. But there was no sacrifice slash prayer to invoke that. And therefore, the flood actually happened. I think this is similar to an idea we said in the past about prayer throughout the year and how that fits in to how we understand what happens on Rosh Hashanah. The Talmud tells us that all of our income is determined on Rosh Hashanah. The entire year's income, the whole annual income is determined on Rosh Hashanah. Well, if so, why do I pray for our livelihood every single day? Three times. Three times a day we pray for livelihood. Why? It's already been predetermined since the times of Rosh Hashanah. Here's the answer. On Rosh Hashanah, we get determined, or it's it's determined regarding us, how much money, how much income is going to be allocated for us. But like the trees on day three, like the grasses on day three, it's not actually visible to us. It doesn't actually surface. It's there at the entrance of the earth, ready to surface with prayer. And therefore, we have almost like an escrow account. You have all the income determined to head your way. That's already been set in place. That's been established since Rosh Hashanah. And every day when we pray for it, 
we're actualizing, we're activating what we always had. We're making withdrawals, so to speak, in our escrow account. What a powerful idea. Exquisite insight number two. All the ingredients were in place for the flood to have been forestalled before it even happened. If only someone brought a sacrifice, if only someone prayed. Who knows how many tragedies, how many disasters have been avoided only because people did pray. And who knows how many could have been sidestepped, could have been avoided had someone prayed, had someone offered a sacrifice. What a powerful idea. Definitely one that qualifies as exquisite. I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did. If you did, send me an email. If you didn't, send me an email as well. RabbiWalbyGmail.com. Have an amazing rest of your week. Have a fabulous and splendid and stupendous and wonderful Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, we will talk again next week.